It's at times like these. I get all these looks from out there. Uh, this is a weird thing. This is actually a good thing. I know it's, it's really hard to see that, but it is. Uh, I had my fourth month checkup this week, and my doctor was nearly ecstatic with me. Uh, all of my numbers are pretty good, and uh, my body is once again adjusting its own idea about what my blood pressure should be. And so we're having to adjust some medications because uh, I don't need as many. And, 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 so, and so we're trying to fac- figure out the balance. So I'm a, I'm a little low this morning. Now, it's still, my, you know, it's still within safe range. It's just my body saying, I don't know what's happening. This, this isn't supposed to be like that. So don't be, don't be overly alerted. And uh, I promise I will do my very best not to fall. Uh, because then I will never hear the end of it. Because so, I know you guys love me. Uh, but it is a, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing, and God is adjusting stuff in me. And I'll let you know, this because those of you who always ask, my diabetes is well under control. My blood pressure is well under control. Uh, he kind of uh, had a little bit of wow when he realized how much weight I've lost in four months. So uh, things are really good. It just doesn't feel like it this morning. So uh, I do appreciate your prayers, but don't be overly concerned about my needing the cane. Or, and I thanks to my, to my my stage crew who took care of the props and all that stuff. And thank you. Why are we here? It's still the same question we've been asking now for months, and we are looking at the idea of ministry. Now, over the last few weeks, we have looked particularly at the idea of the heart of ministry. I have not looked at a list of things to do per se, because I believe before we will actually start ministering, our hearts need to get right with God. We need to be ready and listening and open to what He's having to do. Over the last few weeks, we've seen that For us to minister, we have to have hearts of compassion. We will not serve each other or the Lord unless we care. We've heard a call from God to be more fully committed to what He is wanting to do in our lives. And we have seen that we need to be ready to serve, willing to serve. But there's one more issue that I need to address today. What if we feel inadequate? And I could probably take it out the what if, couldn't I? When I look at myself, when you look at yourselves, um, has it ever struck you that you're just kind of a hopeless case for ministry? You don't really know what to do. You don't know what to say. You don't, you're just trying to find out. You, you keep telling me I should be ministering, but I don't know if I'm able. Well, there's a phenomenon that is known as the fraud syndrome. And the fraud syndrome happens in a lot of different people at different times in life, but essentially it is this. I'm afraid that one day you'll find out who I really am and you'll think I'm a fraud. You'll decide 
I really shouldn't be here. You'll decide, I, I pulled it off and everybody has looked at me and think everything's okay, but I know what's inside of me or what isn't. And we begin to think we're really not able to do what God is calling us to do. Um, Cass and Crowns had a song about shiny, happy people that were you know, living under a steeple and putting our, our faces on at church. Um, sometimes the reality is we just feel inadequate. And I would be willing to bet that there are more than a few people that are here today, even in this small congregation, who have felt, I don't have what it takes. And Danny, you've been talking to us about ministry. But brother Danny, what if I don't have what it takes to minister? What if I don't have anything to offer? I can't think of a thing. I don't know how to deal with this. Well, to help answer that, we're going to look again. I'm going out on the preacher's limb of looking at a very familiar passage of Scripture today. Um, in fact, the miracle we look at today that Natalie's already read from, John, it is the only miracle apart from the resurrection of Jesus that shows up in every gospel, which ought to tell you how important it is. Now, we've gotten so used to the story, we may have lost the wonder of it all. But in our, in our text, as we look at the heart of what is happening here, Jesus challenged his disciples to trust me, which is essentially what this is all about, can give us some insight into the question, what if I don't have what it takes? So let's take a look at the book, Gospel of John, chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000, verses 1 through 13. If you would, please stand. Hear the word of the Lord, listen with both ears, with all of your heart. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias. Let me just give you two fill-ins. Chapter 5 is filled with all sorts of miracles and wonderful works of Christ. And most scholars look at that little phrase, sometime after this, and have suggested it may be up to six months after all of the events of chapter 5. And now Jesus is taking his crew to the northeastern shore of Galilee. It's called here in John the Sea of Tiberias because John has readers in Asia Minor who may not know anything about the Sea of Galilee. It was renamed after a city that was named in the honor of the emperor Tiberius. So it's been some time And Jesus is drawing aside. But a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked us only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered, it would take more than a half year's wages to buy enough bread 
for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. This is a powerful story, and you know it well, and I fully know that your minds may have already disengaged. I know all that has to be said about this. But we'll see. In this passage, Jesus used a little boy's five loaves and two fish to feed a multitude. And that's, a, that's an impressive act at any moment in time. But how many of you have taken five loaves and two fish and fed 5,000 plus people. Okay. So when we hear this, we can be disengaged because we don't see that kind of thing. But folks, when I look at this text, what I see is we need to stand ready to use whatever we do have for real ministry. We need to be ready to hear our Lord and Savior as He is calling us to serve. So how do we come to that kind of readiness? How do we come to a place where we serve? Well, we're going to learn some truths from this text that will guide us. And at least one of those truths is not pleasant to hear. So you ready? Because I'm going to start with that first. We don't like this. We don't want to admit it. We don't want to own it. But the reality is, folks, the task is too big on our own. And that goes against our human ego like crazy. I can take care of myself. I can take care of what I need. No, this is a truth that we need to grab hold of at some point in time. When you look at the disciples, they were overwhelmed by Jesus' command to feed the multitude. They've gone to the northeastern shore for essentially what was meant to be a retreat between Jesus and the twelve. But along the way, as they're getting ready to go, someone hears, someone sees. They remember everything Jesus has done, and a crowd gets worked up. Something special is about to happen. So while Jesus and the men are going across the sea, a crowd starts forming, skirting the edge of the Sea of Galilee to get where they're going. Now, John says Passover was coming soon, which probably means what started out as a pretty good crowd on their way around Galilee is now picking up pilgrims who are coming down to Passover. You've got to see this man. He does amazing things. Come with us. And the crowd's growing. Coming to see Jesus 
because they might see some more miracles. We wind up with 5,000 men. Matthew's gospel tells us, specifically, they did not count the women and children. So scholars suggest there might have been as many as 10 to 20,000 people there, large enough to fill a huge amphitheater in the region in the ancient day. And we're told Jesus goes up, and I've been some other translations talk about mountain. Technically not a mountain, it's a hill. There's a sloping area that leads to a plateau in the region we believe that took place. Jesus is now sat down, which was a sign it's teaching time. See, technically, if we really did this like Jesus, I'd be seated every week. And you guys will be standing, so I know that won't go over well, so we'll stick with what we've got. He's ready to teach, and we're told he looks up and he sees this crowd. Now, remember, those were your last week. I told you there are different words for see and to look in the Bible. This one means Jesus looked up, gave an intense observation, and knew what was happening. And he's going to use it. He's going to use it to teach his disciples something important. Tony Evans made this statement. Teachers give students tests to allow them to apply what they've learned. When God tests us, he grants us opportunity to apply spiritual truth to the challenging circumstances we face. And then he said, with thousands of people, hungry people gathering, he gives Philip a pop test he will never forget. And there are two disciples singled out. Philip operates as the go-between Jesus and the rest of the disciples. Jesus looks at him. And, and we know that Philip was from Bethsaida. And Luke identifies the spot near Bethsaida. So Philip's from there. And Jesus looks at him, where are we going to buy bread? And when Philip gives his answer, it is absolutely clear this is hopeless, Jesus. We can't do it, Jesus. It's impossible, Jesus. And then Andrew, and we like to point out with Andrew that every time he's mentioned in the Gospels, he's bringing somebody to meet Jesus. And he did bring somebody, a little boy. But it is absolutely clear when Andrew brings that boy to Jesus, he's as hopeless as Philip is. Nothing can be done here. And when you look at all four Gospels, it becomes clear the entire disciple band, as far as they are concerned, are saying, this is a hopeless situation and there is no way that it can be fixed. They are starting off with the understanding we can't do anything. And we're not that far away, are we? When we see the needs around us, it can seem they will never be met. Get ready, because the needs are many and disturbing, and I've just picked some. As of January 2020, Mississippi had an estimate of 1,107 people experiencing homelessness, 
on any given day. Over a thousand people. And according to the United States Intermittency Council on Homelessness, 75 of those represent family households. 68 were veterans. 51 were unaccompanied young adults from 18 to 24. And 146 out of that thousand, every single day, 146 are experiencing chronic homelessness. They're going to be among those who are counted every single day. Hunger. Hunger is an issue in Mississippi. And extratable.org, you might want to check that site out. They've got, they're trying to find how do we help. Hunger affects over 600,000 people living in Mississippi all the time. 121,000 of those are children. Domestic violence is a crime that occurs when one person in a relationship seeks to gain maintain control to the other by physical, verbal, emotional, sexual, or financial abuse. According to statistics across the land, one in four women and one in 12 men will be subjected to some form of domestic violence during their lifetime. And then here's the one that breaks my heart at a completely different level. 50% of the people in Biloxi, where we serve, 50% of people living in Biloxi have no religious affiliation at all. Get a hold of that, folks. Five and ten, no connection. One and two, no connection. 50% have no connection. And the truth is, many of those non-church people have never been churched. They've never had a relationship with the Lord. And listening to those kind of statistics, folks, that can give us a sense of no hope. We are one small church You are one individual in that church. When you start looking at the needs of this world, it's not hard to understand why we would come to a place. This is hopeless. But we need to remember something that the disciples had completely forgotten. We need to, we must always remember that we are never alone when Christ calls us to serve. The disciples had to learn Jesus was able to accomplish what needed to be done even if they weren't. And we need to understand while we cannot take care of every need out there, our Lord assures us you and I we really can have an impact on this world. If we will remember we are not alone. If it was just left up to any one of us, we probably wouldn't get much, if anything, done. But if we understand 
that the hurt and the pain in this world is at such a huge level, we need God's aid, we need God's help. If we will know that, then we can know that He will enable us to minister. Whoever He brings to you that has a need that you can do something about, He'll help you. And when we understand that, we will know our second truth. What, what is at our disposal for ministry must be assessed. Let's take a look at what we really have to use. So let's take an assessment of who we are, your gifts, your talents, your sense of calling. What do you bring to this table? Now, in our story, the disciples are strike number two. Because the disciples looked at what was available and were still defeated, still were defeated. When Jesus asked Philip, where are we going to buy bread? Will you notice all he asked Philip, where, is we, where are we going to buy bread? At that point, Philip answers, and it almost sounds like a, a, a small rebuke, doesn't it? Jesus even if there was a place that had much, that much bread, we don't have almost a half a year's wages, 200 denarii, anywhere from six to eight months' wages for the average working man. And Philip knows Judas doesn't have that much in the money bag. You are asking us something that is crazy. What do you mean? Where are we going to buy bread? There's... There are no bread stores in Bethsaida that can handle this crowd. And there's no money in our pockets that can handle it. And then Andrew. Andrew takes a different tack. He goes into the crowd. And he starts searching. Looking for what's available. Now, we don't know. The Bible doesn't specifically say the little boy said, here's my lunch, take it. But Andrew wouldn't have known about the lunch unless there was an encounter with the little boy. And he takes it and he says, this kid has got some bread and some fish. Okay. This is not foot-long bread from Subway. Five barley loaves. Think about the size of an English muffin, only completely flat. Barley was the cheap man's bread. In fact, there was a saying in first century Palestine, if you really want to know, let people know you're really poor, you say, I don't even have enough money for barley. And the two fish, these are not snapper. These are not marlin. Think sardine size. They were either salted or get this, and this just makes my mouth water, they were pickled into kind of a spread to make the bread taste a little better. That's it. And Andrew comes and says he's got this, but even he, he, he says, he says, how far will they go among so many? Again, hopeless. This is what we have, and Jesus, it's not enough. And this is the key to what happened that day. 
What was the one provision they're forgetting about? Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus' first miracle was recorded in the Gospel of John? Wine into water into wine, a nature miracle. Jesus is about to perform another nature miracle and knows he's going to do it. Those disciples were at the wedding. They heard Mary say, they've run out of wine. They heard Jesus say, what does this have to do with me? And again, Mary, whatever he says, do it. And he takes water and turns it into wine, the best wine of the festival. Which I don't mean to be picky, but folks, Jesus did not turn water into grape juice. He turned it into wine. Nobody's going to have a party with a bunch of wine and then say, oh, and the grape juice was better than it all. He did something impossible. Months ahead of this, they saw him work amazing miracles with people. But right at this moment in time, they've forgotten. He's here. And if he can turn water into wine, what is he going to do with five loaves and two fish? You see, the reality, Christ asks us to give what we have, not what we don't. And I wish with everything in me that we could see miracles every day of our lives. But you know something? That didn't even happen in the Bible. If you look at the Scripture carefully, Miracles happen in pocket events. But if you read the Bible with understanding, the vast majority of people who lived in biblical days did not see these kind of miracles. But there is a principle we do need to see here. Essentially, Jesus is not really asking the disciples find enough bread to feed this crowd. He's asking them to trust him. Give me what you got. And he took the provision of five loaves and fish jelly and used it to work his work. We don't have everything we would want to fix our whole world, and folks, we don't. We can't. But right here, right now, for just a moment, I want you to think, each one of you, What do I have to offer Jesus? What do I have to offer people? Some of you in this crowd, you have mechanical skills. Maybe you could help one of our senior adults get a car running that doesn't have enough funds to take it to the shop. Some of you, and I know this because I've experienced it, we have folks here who have a great deal of empathy who care about people and are willing to hear. I once heard a guy say, the absolute toughest job in all of church is youth ministry. He said, I would hate to look into the face of 15, 20 youth and realize they're bored and I have to do something about it. But there may be a teenager in our midst who's troubled, 
and they don't have anyone to turn to. Maybe they're afraid of talking to Mr. Dave. They don't want to disappoint him. They can't talk to their parents or won't. There may be someone here who cares enough who can lend an ear and maybe offer guidance. Some of you, most of you have the ability to write. And some of you who have enough care may have the ability to start sending out cards to church members, friends, and just saying, I'm thinking of you and I'm praying about you as you make it through your week. And some of you, some of you come across that downcast person who has lost all sense of hope. Do you have enough compassion and concern to share with them the good news of Jesus Christ? The thing is, whatever we have to offer may just sound like fish and bread to you. But if you need fish and bread, that offering means all the world. Chuck Swindoll talked about an old lady, an elderly woman who, she was a widow. She was restricted in her activities and she wondered what she could do to help. And she realized, I can play the piano. And this woman, this was many years ago, took out an ad in the Oakland Tribune. Some of you would probably, I'd never do this. But listen, pianists will play hymns by phone daily for those who are sick and despondent. The service is free. And the notice included a number to call. And that's where, no, I'm not getting on my phone. But she did. Before it was over with, people were calling. She asked, what hymn would you like? And they'd tell her. And over the course of a few months, her playing had brought cheer to several hundred people. Many expressed their heart. They just poured out their heart to her just in talking to her. when She, she wants to play him, and they're letting her know what's going on in their lives. And she was able to use that gift and encourage people. The truth is, whatever we can bring to the table, whatever we can do in an active and meaningful way to help somebody along, we need strength from the Father to release what we have for His use. We need strength. The courage to step out into a hopeless world, finding ways through Christ to bring hope, even if they're just little things. You become aware of a need and you actually are able to buy somebody a tank of gas. We need compassion that doesn't see the need and simply say, give up. It's too much. There's too much that has to be done, Denny. There's too much. We start looking at the huge forest and we start looking at individual trees. We can't fix every problem in Biloxi in the Mississippi Gulf Coast. But what about what God brings our way? And so we need to ask God to help us look beyond our comfort zone. Ask God, help me to look beyond my own sense of convenience 
And when you bring a need to my mind and I look at what you have given me, I realize I could help. Then you give me strength to do what I need to do. And when God helps us release what we do have, we're finally ready to say, okay, here's what I've got, Lord. We need to trust that God will bless what we give for ministry. Whatever we give. I bring you back to a miracle we know oh so well. We lose the wonder of it. Jesus used five barley loaves and two fish to feed a multitude. Okay? If you want to bet, he used Ritz crackers and sardines to feed a multitude. Now, they bring him what they have, and Jesus tells his disciples how the people sit down. Now, technically... They were reclining. In first century Palestine, they would lie on their side, prop themselves up with a hand, and eat. Get them ready. Mark's gospel tells us they're divided into groups of 50 and 100, and that's some pretty smart logistics. Because you can keep track on the people who are fed, and you can know where to collect the leftovers. And then he gave thanks for two fish, and five barley loaves. Thank you, Father. And the miracle began. We don't know technically how it happened. Some picture Jesus just breaking off little crumbs and putting them in baskets. By the way, those baskets would have been the baskets the disciples had with them, probably filled with their clothing for the overnight trip. And as he broke off little bits, it just kept breaking off. We don't know, but however it took place, when it is all said and done, the Scripture says everybody had their fill. And one of the craziest explanations I've ever heard is a bunch of Jewish people would not have gone out on the field without their lunches, just like that little boy. And they're probably so selfish they don't want to help. Most likely, they would have been carried them in their long sleeves, kind of like a basket they're wearing. And as the basket goes by, they dump their food in and then get a little bit out. I think Jesus worked a miracle of nature. And when it was over with, 12 basketfuls of leftovers are taken up. I love somebody called it 12 doggy bags for 12 disciples. And the crowd was so excited, they wanted to force Jesus to be king. As you continue reading in our text, whether you're ready or not, we're going to make you king. And what does Jesus do? At the height of his popularity, at the beginning of chapter 6 in Galilee, the height of his popularity, I'm the man that's come down from heaven. If you want to be in the kingdom, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And like that, they turned on him. They ridiculed him. They rejected him. He went from the most popular guy on the block to the scum of the earth. And he even looks at his disciples. You can leave me too. And this is what's amazing about this miracle. Remember we're told he already knew what he was going to do? 
Folks, I believe he knew what the crowd was going to do as well. And he fed them anyway. When we look around and we look for people to help, to hope they will come to our church, we have no idea what service is about. Service is helping whenever you can, however you can, with what God gives you, regardless of how the people respond to your help. So if we understand this, if we learn to trust God as we serve, amazing things can happen. I picked on the disciples a lot, but I want to bring something important to you. They had no clue what Jesus was doing. They had no hope that he could do anything at the moment. This was hopeless. But the really great thing about this story, they obeyed him. Have you ever just stopped to think about that? Jesus, nothing can be done. But we'll do what you're telling us to. Even in their hopelessness, they ultimately trust him to do something. And as a result, we're part of what God did that day. We may not always understand the why or how of God's work, but we need to learn to trust. That person you sent a card to might have been without their last ounce of encouragement. And they go to the mail and they see a card and thinking about you. That person who needs help getting their car going may be so excited about it, their little car is now the taxi for all of their friends taking them to the grocery store and to the hospital. That teenager who is confused and conflicted may actually have some hope because somebody cared enough to really hear. And that lost soul might cause a party to go off in heaven when they finally see, I need Jesus in my life. I believe that we need to trust God for the courage to try and do what can be done. I have two choices, basically. I have the choice to live my life by looking at all the things I cannot do. at all the things that are wrong with this mixed-up world and become idle to the point of just existing. Or I can choose to ask God for the courage and strength to do what I can do. Little acts of love and compassion that may not seem a lot to me, but will touch hearts. And that choice is mine and that choice is yours. Will you stand up and learn to trust and proclaim your trust through the actions? By the grace of God, I do have what it takes to minister. Listen to that, folks. By the grace of God, in Christ, I do have what it takes to minister. Whatever your gift, whatever your calling, and I will remind you, 
The Word of God says, if you're a child of God, you have a gift. And when you tell me you don't, well, you have to take that up with God and His Word. I do have what it takes. I can shine the light into the darkness. Kyle Eilman wrote, When I started a new church in Los Angeles uh, County, California, I found that I was overwhelmed by pressure and stress. He said, I was working more than 70 hours a week. My wife would ask me to take a day off, and I would say, I can't. I wasn't sleeping at night, so I began taking sleeping pills. When the church was about a year old, I woke up in the night, and I had this strange sense that God was laughing at me. As I lay in my bed, I wondered, why is God laughing at me? That's not the response you want from God, is it? Why is he laughing? He said it would take five years before I finally had an answer to that question. And here's how it happened. When we moved into our current house, I saved the heaviest piece of furniture for last, the desk for my office. As I was pushing and pulling the desk with all my might, my four-year-old son came up and asked if he could help. So together we start sliding it across the floor. He's pushing and he's grunting as we lurched our way along. After a few minutes, my son stopped, looked up at me, and said, Dad, you're in my way. And then he tried to push the desk by himself. Of course, it didn't budge. Then I realized he thought he was doing all the work. He says, I couldn't help but laugh. And the moment I started laughing at my son's comment, I recalled the middle of the night incident and I realized why God was laughing at me. I thought I was pushing the desk. I thought I was in control. He says, I know that's ridiculous, but instead of recognizing God's power and strength, I started to think it all depended on me. For us to realize that each one of us in this room can actually do ministry You are very different people in many ways. You've got different gifts, different calling. Each one of you can do something for the kingdom of God. So we need to know, if I'm going to do something, I need God to help me. If I'm going to do something, I need to honestly look at what he has gifted me and gave me talents for so that I can do something. Then we need to learn. When I start even my little loaves and fishes, somebody's life is going to be touched. Each one of us here has a task to perform in the body of Christ. And the reality is, if you refuse to do your part, I refuse to do mine, the effectiveness of Christ's church is hampered. So today, I'm asking you, go ahead and Bow your heads before the Lord. Be honest with God. Open your heart to Him. Help me become the minister you called me to be. Start looking at the needs around you. Some within this church, there are some things that we need to be done and we need someone willing to do it. Start looking at the world around us. 
and ask God to give us the strength and courage to trust him. Trust him to supply the need and grace you will need to get the job done. So today, I'm calling each and every one of you who know Christ, each and one of you, whether you are a member of this church or you're away from your home church today, ask God, help me to become an active member of the body of Christ. Bring what you have to the Lord. And then get ready to be amazed that God can take your gifts and use it to his glory.